Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we have another episode of Ask Us Anything. Dun, dun, yeah. dun. <laughs> Ask Us Anything 5. Let's first thank our question askers for their patience because these are, they're not ready to have a birthday, but they've been around for a little while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've kind of stockpiled a few. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll run through these, but if folks do have questions for us, you are welcome to just record a little audio file or even a video file and email to email it to probably me. Uh, and you can find our contact information at the website, thebusinessofauthority.com. Cool. Should we jump right in? Yeah, let's go to question number one. I think these are in chronological order. Uh, I believe so. Yep. Cool. All right, here we go. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Rochelle. Uh, just wanted to send a question in um, following a podcast you released a while ago where you talked about making the break from freelancing and moving into pure consulting. Um, and so my question is this, how do you recommend somebody should approach building their portfolio for their website? Or maybe it's through a, a series of case studies. Um, but how do you recommend somebody should should do that when they've you know gone from freelancing to consulting? The, the real challenge is that um, when you're freelancing, you know, you're building things, you're designing things. It's very easy to kind of show those on your, your website. However, when you're doing strategy, it's much higher level. And sometimes it's not even, you know, you who's actually you know, executing and, and implementing the work. You know, you're just making recommendations and you're overseeing the projects. So do you have any kind of pointers on, on best practices for doing that? Thanks so much. Really love the podcast. Thanks for everything you do. Looking forward to hearing an answer. Cool. That was a long-time listener, Ant Pew. Aunt, Thanks, Ant, yeah. for that. Thank you, Ant. Yeah, so I've got thoughts. I've got feelings. Why don't you go? You can go first on this one. Okay, so I think there's sort of two... I think there's two... There's like a chicken or egg problem here and it kind of breaks into two things. Uh, the I think after you make the switch, the thing that I would put on my website if I were doing sort of advisory consulting and strategy work that didn't have sort of like artifacts that I created myself. Other people are doing the implementation and building the, I don't know, website or whatever. Uh, the thing that you would want on your portfolio, air quotes portfolio, would be testimonials from the people for whom you did the strategy work or the advisory work. And they will be able to articulate the value that you, that they feel you contributed to the eventual outcome. So it could be something like, you know, we would have, we were getting ready to go down a a complete dead end, but Ant saved us from that. And we probably saved hundreds of thousands of dollars. Or we, we had been stuck in the same place for 18 months and our competitors were gaining market share on us. And Ant came in and, and got us back on track. And now we're leading the industry, you know, things like that. Uh, ideally, the testimonials would be, uh, I like the format from the brain audit by Sean D'Souza. And I've got a, a version of that on my website. If you search for building the perfect building the perfect testimonial, you'll find it. And it's a six question format that encourages the client to share specific benefits, uh, probably with numbers, some kind of absolute or relative numbers in you know of the improvement that they attribute to your contribution. So anyway, so at the end of the day, you end up with a website of of glowing reviews. You know, thanks to Ant's contribution, we 2x'd our revenue or profit or whatever. 
-hmm. you get things like that. And then when people come along who are kind of in the same boat that your past clients were in and they read those testimonials, they're going to say, wow, this is the person I need to talk to, or at least that's what the, that's what the air quotes portfolio would look like, uh, in my opinion. Um, I guess you could do case studies, but I've never, I just feel like people don't read them. (laughs) I feel like a testimonial, a nice summarized thing. Um, I don't think a case study would hurt you, but there are a lot of work and there are actually some work for the client a lot of times. So I think a testimonial is the, the, the perfect 80, 20 rule of getting you where you need to go. So that's, that's what a, that's what I think your website would look like if you were doing strategy advisory type work. And then the other question is the chicken or egg problem. Like, how do you get there? You know, if your current website is all like, here's a website that I built, isn't it beautiful? Then, uh, and, and it, I don't know, it took me this long and there are the, this many pages on it and this many templates and all these cool plugins that it has all these features. If that's currently what your portfolio looks like and it's not about the benefits or the results or the outcomes for the client, you know, a website's not an outcome. A website is just a marketing tool. So, you know, what is the outcome? If you don't have any of that stuff, then it's like, how do you start selling the strategy and uh, more higher altitude things to clients if they see you as a pair of hands, because that's what you're showing on your website is like stuff your hands made. Uh, And that's pretty tricky. But at some point, what is going to happen is you're going to get a strategy engagement somehow by hook or by crook, perhaps a, a pro bono thing, or maybe alongside a implementation project that you're doing and the client pulls you into like, hey, you know, pulls you into a meeting and says like, hey, you know, I know you're working on the website, but we've got a security question or we've got an architecture question or uh, we're thinking about going hard into TikTok or something. And you seem to know what (laughs) you seem to know digital. Uh, You seem to know what those crazy kids are doing these days. And they ask you really high level advice. They just start asking for advice. And if people if you can kind of parlay that into a testimonial, ultimately, and start to get those kinds of results and those testimonials behind the scenes in a, in a, I don't like to use the word hustle, but you're going to, you, but anyway, somehow, somehow you got to get those results. Uh, and then you'll be confident that you can do it. And the, the clients will, prospects will see these, you know, this sort of like social proof that you at least knew how to do it right three times. Uh, and then at that point, when you're ready to make the switch, you know, you got to take all of that. I, I really do think you need to do a hard uh, pivot on your website, get rid of the hands work stuff mm-hmm. and just focus on this new thing. So there's a, you know, there's like a, you might want to do a bunch of this stuff behind the scenes. Um, if you're doing a big business pivot like that, I, I actually maintained two websites while I was doing it. And then once I had fully made the switch, then I just swapped them basically and had the the, the new one redirect to the old one with the new content. So anyway, I didn't think it was going to be that long of an answer, but that's, uh, that's my thought on it. Well, I I agree with most of what you said. I I think maybe what I would do is position it this way is that this is about a shift. The shift from freelancing to consulting changes so many things about what you do day to day. And in terms of the website, instead of it, it, we tend to be as freelancers, we tend to be oriented towards showing our portfolio. See, I made this for you. And that's not what strategy work is. It's see, I helped get these results for you, these outcomes, this transformation. And um, 
I don't know that I would do two websites just because I it's hard enough to have one, never mind two. But yeah, but there's a shift process. If you pay attention to this, there's a shifting process. So all of a sudden with your strategy clients, you're not showing a portfolio because a strategy client doesn't want to see a portfolio. And they don't really want to see case studies that often either. It depends on what you do. Um, but a lot of times you can talk about the case studies, anonymize them, and then use them as fodder for your blog or videos or podcast episodes. You know, mm-hmm. Those are ways to, um, to use that, that, those assets in different ways. And I just think it's, it's a big mindset shift when you first start because you're like, wait a minute, but I had pictures of what I did. So so what you start doing is, is to, again, depending on what you're doing and who your, your clients are, maybe you have a client list on your website. Maybe that's part of your authority building. I, I agree with everything Jonathan said about testimonials. Absolutely. Because the testimonials for most of us when we're ready to hire somebody, that's what we're looking at. We want to see those and we don't just want to see, oh, Aunt did a really good job on making this thing. What I want to hear is he did a really good job of surfacing these issues that we hadn't thought about before. And oh my God, it increased our revenue by a factor of two. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things are really what we want to hear. And I think you just start doing it. You just every time you have an engagement, think of your website not as static, but as a living, breathing thing. Just add it at it. And you can also do it in terms of, if you think about the architecture of your website, you can have pages that eventually you unpublish, like that portfolio page. At some point, you just blink and it's gone. Yep. Yeah. I I especially agree with the, uh, think of your website as a, a living, breathing thing. Like um, it's not, it shouldn't, it's not a set it and forget it kind of thing. I change my website daily, every single day, literally every single day, my website evolves in some way. So that, that's a great point because I know a lot of people kind of like, okay, I did the website, now it's done. <laughs> yeah. They move, you know, move on to something else. But you can always be uh, incorporating new things, tweaking it, and, you know, it, it, responding to feedback, let's say. Just not tweaking it for no reason, but... Um, right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, thanks, Ant. Good question. Hopefully that, yeah, hopefully that helped uh, someone. I'm sure Ant's already figured it out because he asked about <laughs> in September. <laughs> Sorry, Ant. Yeah. Uh, Cool. All right. Well, let's move on to the next one. The next, the next question is from Matt Cruz. Let's see what Matt has to say. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Rochelle. Thank you for the show and all the wisdom that you have been sharing. It's really been awesome. I had a question. How do you stay an expert if you're moving from building to advising? I'm concerned that if I am no longer hands-on keyboard, my expertise will atrophy. I currently build scheduling algorithms to maximize profit and minimize waste, and I really enjoy it. I'm concerned that if I stopped building, though, and moved to more of a mentoring advising role and elevating my level of engagement, my expertise would diminish. What would you advise? Thank you very much. I got a little trigger happy there. Matt cut me off. Jeez, Matt, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Okay, so this is very similar, but a different angle on the question. So if I move from implementation into strategy or into advisory, or oversight, won't I start to atrophy? Won't my skills get rusty? Won't won't I actually be unable to perform my duties? You know, so like, and this is really this is super common. This is a fear mm-hmm. that I hear all the time, especially from software developers. I you know I I, I don't know if there's well no I, I 
it's probably everyone. I'm just, I just mostly get it from software developers because I mostly talk to software developers. Uh, but it's, I hear it all the time. It's like, well, I'm a Rails expert and you want me to start advising on like, I don't know, system architecture or, or, uh, you know, higher level stuff. I'm going to start falling behind with Rails or whatever the latest framework is, React, whatever, you name it. And all I can say is in my experience, I, I, I made this pivot many years ago, probably in two, th the date kind of matters. So it's probably around 2009, let's just say 2009, right? And then for years, years and years, five, six, seven years after that of, of not coding barely at all, barely at all coding. Uh, and I was still perfectly capable of giving clients what they needed from a strategy level because the 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 nuances of the implementation you know it's like you don't need to be typing all those semicolons to like remember how to code the the things that start to matter more are much more big picture than any new new syntax in javascript like it doesn't matter the implementation people will do that that's fine it doesn't that's not a make or break situation um, so what happens is you can stop paying attention to little syntax details and, uh, you know, little little changes to the framework. And you can focus on the big ones, like when Angular 2 came out and it was, it, it was not backward compatible. Now, all of a sudden, you need someone who's, you need someone like you to take a deep dive into that and figure it out on their own, not on a project. But so, so it would be common for me when something fundamentally new came out like app cache or something like that i would i would test the heck out of it so you, you sort of act like a researcher and you go through it in a way that that probably a day-to-day -day developer wouldn't even do because day-to-day -day developer is going to get something working and then it works and they're going to stop they're not going to kick the tires all the way around and and be like all right what are where are all the ways that this thing can fail what are all the capabilities and you can kind of go into the lab and when there's something big something game changing that enables new things for your that your clients care about like offline web apps or being able to take a uh, take a, a a photo with the browser things like that that could potentially be game changing for certain applications and in whole businesses then you could go into the lab, you test that thing five ways from Sunday, which is super fun, by the way. It's incredibly fun to have the time to do that sort of thing. And you could just about write a book on it by the end. And uh, so you won't. So I guess my, my point is the things that don't really matter to the client and don't really matter to the structure of the project, um, that's most of the stuff that you're not going to be day to day with. You're not going to forget it. You might get a little rusty, but that's not going to affect your ability to, to give really good advice at a high level about the big picture things. And when something does come along that requires a deep dive, you'll have plenty of time to do it and it'll probably, you'll probably love it. So, you know, I guess it's, um, there, there's this altitude thing. I mean, I, that metaphor is there for a reason. It's like, as you go up to the 30,000 feet, you don't forget all of this stuff you knew before. Um, you might not be way up to date with the latest syntax, but it, it just doesn't matter. It, it doesn't affect a lot of those little boots on the ground things. It's not that they're not important, but they just don't need to be lifted up to the level of decision making at the top of the organization. So you actually will, just to wrap up, you'll, you won't get as rusty as you think you will 
like you, you won't be get as rusty as, as you fear you might. Um, and the new things that you'll see are, are still fun. Like you'll still get your hands dirty with stuff. Uh, you just won't do it on projects. You'll do it as research on the side, uh, but only when it needs to be done. Because there are other people yeah. that can do that right. at a lower uh, price than what you will charge <laughs> right. to do the strategy. Yeah. 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 Because I think a lot of this to me is mindset. And I totally get the fear. I don't want to minimize that. I, I get that. But I think the way to look at this is to rise above that fear and say, what is it that I want to do with my time? Because you might decide, I want to do the tech. I want to keep my head down and keep doing this. And that's okay. You can do that, whether you're employed by somebody else or whether you have your own business and you operate essentially as a freelancer. Or maybe a, uh, when I say freelancer, you could be a freelancer on steroids where you're the most expensive resource that does whatever this is that you do. But if you want to move towards strategy, if you get jonesed by this idea of these bigger issues and understanding that, lean into that. Because the other stuff, it's, it's a little bit like riding a bicycle, right? You cannot have ridden one for 10 years, but when you get back on, you remember how to steer, you remember where your feet go, uh, you know what to do. You may go a little slower, you may be a little wobbly, but you know what to do. That's really what this is about, is if you want to get in, into strategy and that's what really lights your fire, don't let this fear keep you from going there. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> and plus, you can just ask the people that are implementing, like, oh, can you show me that new syntax? And they're like, yeah, check it out. And then like in five <laughs> minutes, you know it. You don't have to do it for 40 hours, you know, a week. Yeah. Uh, anyway. So, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's it's fun and it's exciting. And, and, you know, Matt, you're just at the beginning of that. So experiment. Have some fun with it. Exactly. Uh, cool. All right. Our next question comes from Allison Haynes. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. So here's what Allison has to, to ask. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for talking about live events and how you can't imagine returning to live events just yet on the latest episode of TBOA, where you guys talked about your predictions for 2022. I'm in that same boat and thought I might be one of few. I see so many events and happy hours in my industry and city going back to in-person, but I still don't feel safe going to places with groups of people who I don't know the vaccination or cautiousness status of. And flying is totally out of the question for me still, as it feels too risky. I've been worried lately that I might reach a point where I'll become irrelevant and lose authority if I don't go back to attending these in-person events with everyone else. I've really enjoyed the virtual conference and event format, and I have a lot of ideas of other things I could do virtually for my business, but it seems like the majority of people are over virtual events and are eager to meet in person. I'd be interested to know you and Rochelle's thoughts on building authority while avoiding the return to in-person. Are curated events going to be a key aspect of building authority, or is it possible to build the same amount of authority entirely virtually for the foreseeable future? I always enjoy TBOA episodes. Thanks so much, Allison. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so this was three months ago at this point, approximately. She, and frankly, she might be feeling even more strongly about it now that restrictions are opening up. It's mm. um, There's even more mingling than there was before. <laughs> so 
I'm I'm willing to be, we can sort of talk this through. I'm willing to be convinced that there are industries where this is different industry to industry. I'm willing to be convinced mm-hmm. that there are certain types of industries that do not just won't go virtual or won't stay somewhat virtual. Um, I don't feel like her industry would be one of them. I, I, you know, I'm thinking of like, I'm thinking of like, what, what industry is that? She's, oh, she didn't say it. Um, she is in the, how do you say it? She's like, uh, she helps independent fashion designers. I think like, um, you know, women who make patterns and designs for dresses and blouses and stuff, get them manufactured. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So she's kind of like an expert on the, on the manufacturing overseas, which probably has its own different problems now. Um, so I mean, I could imagine, I could maybe imagine like, like every year when we go to the the sort of like knitting thing, you know, this big knitting convention thing uh, out in Western Mass and it's just like sheep and alpaca everywhere and, you know. (laughs) it's not the same thing as it's certainly not the kind of experience that would even make sense in a virtual context. Um, so I, I'm not going to say that there's probably some industries where this is a bigger deal than others, but the flip side though, is think of someone who you feel like is an authority, you know, I don't know, um, Simon Sinek or Seth Godin or, you know, name, just name someone. You know, dear listener, think of someone who you perceive as an authority. Have you ever met them? Probably not. Have you even been to a conference where they were? Probably not. So, you know, like, I think, you know, certainly speaking at a conference is a great authority builder, but I, it doesn't seem like the only way to me anymore. I mean, I really, I really am obviously bullish on podcasts as an authority building exercise. And so maybe if we just think of, just think of that. Think of people who you only know from podcasts, only podcasts that you believe are an authority on a particular thing. I'm sure you can make a list of those people. So even if it's not a virtual event, but just a digital or some sort of digital um, presence or or digital output, digital digital channel, it just seems it seems a little bit far fetched to me that it would be impossible to build authority, stay relevant completely virtually. I don't know. Discuss. What well, do you think? Yeah. I, I think a lot of this, um, well, let me back up. I, I'm going to put out a premise and say that one can become an authority pretty much entirely virtually um, if you design your business model to match that. Oh, good point. Yeah, because... It, it, Knowing what her industry is was really interesting because my perception of independent fashion designers that these are creative people and they may well be introverts. They like the idea of going to a big event might be horrible to them. They might prefer a different way to interact. And so what are the how do you sell work? I mean, there are people who sell work by being at conferences and being visible and just pressing the flesh. And clearly, Allison does not want to be doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you can be there uh, giving a workshop or giving a a speech or a talk of some sort. But how do you monetize that authority? So I think it's if your business model relies heavily on being in person, then you're stuck. But if you create a business model that allows you to be virtual, and if I'm hearing this right, Allison is the middle person between these designers and manufacturers. So 
I mean, she's the pivot point. So she can kind of create whatever makes sense for that. And everybody's business model is different, but that's what I would be looking to. It's like, how can I meet the people I need to meet in a way that works for them and will further my business? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. About like, how, how do you actually make money? Like, how does the money change hands? If that's not virtual, then you're in trouble. But um, my understanding or my recollection is that she works with the designers to make sure that their patterns are are properly set up and ready to go to the air quotes printer overseas so that it doesn't mm-hmm. go back and forth and have problems when they're actually making it. So she sort of consults to the designer. Um, so one other thing that popped into my mind is that even if there are lots of people who are, you know, maybe right now excited to get back in person, maybe that's a spike because people are happy to be out of the house. Maybe it's, maybe it'll recede a little bit. Um, but even if it doesn't recede, probably to Rochelle's point, probably there are a group of people who would rather not go back to it, but like you feel like they have to, maybe there's an opportunity to create your own virtual event. If, if people mm-hmm. stopped doing them, then maybe there's an opening there for the people who really don't want to go back, but feel like they have to because there's no option. Well, maybe you create an option for them and do like a virtual summit or some kind of could just be a Zoom mastermind or, you know, whatever. It could be could be a dozen different things. Yeah, because I think what happens is when we feel like a certain way, we're convinced like we're the only ones. Nobody else feels this way. But Allison, you are not alone. I'm absolutely convinced you are not alone. And so the key is to find some other people that feel like you do and find a way to serve them. Or even if they don't feel exactly the same way, they may still want to be, if they're your ideal audience, they may still want to be with you in some way and virtual is, will work. Yeah. So geez, hopefully that helps. I'm sure, I'm sure things are changing. Like things have changed quite a bit in the last (laughs) three months. So uh, hopefully this is still relevant. I, I think it's, it's still relevant for me. I, my my stress level is going is lower than it was, but um, you know I I, I I still feel her though. You know yeah. I, I live in a resort town. Um, they took the mask requirements off. I don't know where people are coming from, yeah. so I I don't eat indoors. Um, I'm, I'm not saying I won't get on a plane, but it's not exciting at the moment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I, and, and that's the point is that there are people at all different points on the spectrum. There are people who think this is no big deal and they'll do everything. And there are people who are still, you know, hiding out in their house and ordering groceries online and only going out after dark. Right. <laughs> so there's so many points on the spectrum. And I think that, um, there's no need to apologize for whatever point they're on on the spectrum, but to build your authority and your business model around the way that you want to work. Hmm. Yes. Perfect. Cool. All right. So we've got our fourth question, our fourth and final question. Ooh. And this one is from Oliver. So let's see what Oliver has to say. Hello, Jonathan and Rochelle. I'm Oliver, a user interface and app designer from Austria and also a longtime fan of your show. So thank you for offering so much value each week. My question to you is how to best approach monetization with a digital product. For over one and a half years now, I'm the super enthusiastic host of my YouTube channel, Pimp My Type. And there I offer some advice to designers and developers how they can create better websites and apps by leveling up their typography skills. And it goes pretty well. I have over 2,000 subscribers right now on the channel, 1,000 to my weekly mailing list of font recommendations, and also some visitors on my blog, pimpmytype.com. 
I was surprised how fast it grew actually and how much traction it gained by focusing on this specific topic. You talk about this all the time, of course, but it's always surprising to see how it turns out. But the thing is, over time, it kind of drains me because it takes some time to create this content, even though I love it, but I realized I don't really earn anything back because I don't offer anything besides two services, actually a coaching call for $250 and a type audit for $1,500. Both are quite an investment, so I figured out I needed a low-level entry point product kind of thing. And currently I'm working on a checklist how to pick appropriate fonts for UI and app design and a font pairing online course. I started this all without a plan and a business model and now I see that I really need something that funds the mission, as you always say, funding the mission to boost the typography of the world and helping people improve their digital projects with this superpower. Yeah, so do you think starting with this low level entry point digital product course or something is a good idea or should I take another route? What's the next step for me? What do you think? Thanks again for this great show and everything you offer each week and hope to hear you soon. Bye. I didn't think we did ads on Business of Authority. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to say pimpmytype.com. Love it. Love that name. <laughs> yes. Genius, Oliver. Yes. So I, I actually, you know, if anyone's seen my website, it's nothing but type. So I'm going to check this out too. <laughs> uh, so I think this, the situation Oliver's found himself in is pretty common for people who do have a bias towards creating and publishing where they get in, they're like, oh, this is a thing I love. I love talking about it or writing about it. And they start creating a lot of content. Um, you know, it could be about JavaScript or type or color theory or, or pricing, whatever. You just like, you just are fascinated by this thing and you want to share your fascination with the internet, you know, the world at large. And so they do that and, uh, and get some traction. Maybe you get a couple thousand subscribers on YouTube. You start to get people on your mailing list. You're like, wow, there really is interest. Like people actually care about this. And, you know, let's say you get six months in or something, you're like, geez, this is kind of a lot of work. And now these people are, there's this expectation that every Monday there's going to be a new video or every day there's going to be a new um, email. And it starts to get, it starts to get to that point. Like Oliver said, it's like, how do I fund the mission? I need to, you know, let's say on the side for, for his keep the lights on money, he's doing uh, you know, freelance typography for people or, or is maybe has a full-time job, who knows? But uh, so that it's like kind of, it's at that point where you're like, all right, what, how, how am I going to get paid for this? Like how, how am I going to turn this into an actual business and something more than a sort of, um, I don't want to say hobby, but, but just like passion project that, you know, or a labor of love, let's say. And that's where I think it just gets to fundamentals. It gets, it gets down to like, who needs, who stands to benefit the most from your superpower and how different do they perceive you to be in terms of the options for solving this problem that they have. All business is about solving a problem. It's like people don't give you money to not solve their problems. Who wants, who wants better type? What, or even bigger, what does better type produce? And figure out who wants what you have the most stands to benefit uh, the most stands to benefit from it the most has the most buying power and perceives you as 
the only option or one of the very few options. And then you go to those people and you're like, it's kind of like, well, how could I serve these people? Sometimes they'll just tell you, I wish you had a course or I wish you had a productized service or I wish you had a, a monthly all you can eat, uh, I don't know, pimp my type service or, you know, sometimes you can just ask them if you find the right target market who greatly desires this superpower that you have, it's, it's, to me, it's about research. It's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why or how people would want to pay for that or how you should package it up. But it certainly makes sense to start with like a course. I think that's what he said, right? He's got a, um, uh, he's working on a course. I think that's a great right. place that, to start. One of his ideas. Yeah. I think that's a good place to start, especially if you're, if you're, if what you're teaching on the, um, YouTube channel is sort of like about the craft and the way type works and how to make it work for you and how to pair type different type styles together or fonts together, then yeah, it makes sense to translate into a course, sort of a DIY course for people to take to um, improve their, you know, their, I don't know, their type. I'm assuming this is about websites, online type. So yeah, I mean, I actually, I have a friend who has a business who does nothing but just type. That's it. Uh, web, web fonts, like dealing with web fonts. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, of course, seems like a reasonable place to start. It doesn't mean that that it'll sell, of course. I mean, there's just a lot of market research that that needs to go into that if you want to maximize your odds of not launching to crickets. So it's like, what what should be in the course? How much to charge for it? How many people can it it hold? You know, is it a workshop that can only hold you know deal with ten people and it's a cohort and there's like live you you work with them live online or is it a self paced video thing that you know, it's 50 bucks and people can download it and go through it at their own pace. And is there a, is there a discord or a Slack room where they can discuss their findings or it's just a million moving pieces, but it's certainly a, based on what you shared with us, it seems like a reasonable starting point, but you do, I think if we were working together, I would say, well, like bring me five ideal clients and let's talk to them and see what they want, what their appetite is, how much they want it, those sorts of things. Yeah, so I, I guess that, you know, the really good news here is that you've proved the concept that there is interest in this idea of typography in digital space. Um, and I would start with the 1,000 people on your list. And um, and I agree with Jonathan's um, discourse on research, on market research. But what I would do is I'd look at that thousand. Do you have some people that are already heavily engaged? Like when you send out an email, do they write back to you and talk about it? Identify, and I, I wouldn't say five, I'd say a 10, because they're not really clients yet. These are people on your list. So I would identify 10, even 20 people that are potentially people you could talk to to get more data. And then you have a choice when you talk to them. If you're convinced it's a course, you can go down that path or you can try it another way. You can really get to what is the problem that they're trying to solve with this type? Like, what is it? What is most important to them? Because something you said at the beginning is the 1500 and the 250 are pretty high price points. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, it depends on your audience. They could be super high or they could be super low. We just don't know. And so when you interview them, like literally voice to voice, and you learn from, you ask them tight questions about what 
what they're, what are the problems they're struggling with? What solutions have they tried? What's worked? What hasn't worked? What would be like if they could wave a magic wand? How could it be better? And when you do that with a really open mind, you're going to hear things that you might not think about. Like, I mean, one of the things I just jotted down as we were talking was, you know, is this a, a membership or subscription option where people just want to be connected and they want to see those videos that you drop uh, every week or twice a month, however often you decide to do it. So, I mean, I feel like I, we're doing an echo chamber here. Um, <laughs> but clearly it's it's what's the research because it's possible that there's a higher price point that you need and it's probably likely there's a lower price point you need. But what should that look like? What problem does it solve? And who are you going to market it to? Those are the questions so that you don't waste your time because you've built an asset. This is absolutely an attention asset. And now you can figure out how best to monetize it. Mm, yeah, one thing I want to amplify there is the really open mind piece where when you when you do go out to do this research and you talk to your however many people you can get, more the better pretty much. Um, the, the trap that people can fall into is to try and sell those people on the idea that you've got, even if it's subconsciously. Yeah. So you need to keep a super open mind. Don't have plans and really just interview them about their problems because they're an expert on their problems. Yeah. Uh, they might not be an expert on, on like the right solution, like what, what the right solution is. They might have ideas, but, but that's conjecture. They, it, but they are experts on what their problems are, what they're trying to solve, where they want to be in the future. And if, you know, so if you interview them with a really open mind that I think that's super key. And, uh, there's a book called the mom test by, uh, Fitzpatrick, what's his first name? Rob, Rob Fitzpatrick, that if you're looking, if you're looking for tactical advice on how to do it, I like that book in terms of just telling you exactly what to do and what to watch out for. Um, so that would be maybe a good resource if you are going to take our advice and go interview some engaged people from your list and, and see how you can help them more. How could I help you more? Yeah. Well, and, and I think that the other piece is that when you start to interview people, if you start to hear the same thing over and over again, you can stop interviewing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so that's why it, you might get it in five, but you'll definitely get it in ten. Um, typically, right? It might be harder just because you've got an email list versus people that you have deeper relationships with. But I don't know. Maybe this is a really engaged list, and you'll get it pretty quickly. Um, and then when you do that, the other thing that you're probing for is. Like, what is the kind of what is the price that they want to pay to solve this? How big is the problem? How expensive, excuse me, is the problem? <laughs> and that'll tell you. So if it's a really low cost problem, then there's probably not a lot that you want to do with that. If it's a middle cost problem, then there may be some lower end solutions that you can provide that they'd be really excited about. And that's what they're going to tell you as long as you're not pushing them to like tell you how to design a course, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not going to get, yeah, ideally you'll see patterns. You, you're not going to get like a guarantee that something has worked, but you, you will get a direction. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, you know, if it works, you'll, you'll start yeah. to see a direction like, okay, a theme, a common theme. It might not be like proof that this will work at this price point. It certainly won't be that, but it'll at least be a direction and you'd say, okay, everybody's telling me 
that there's no way they'd buy a book on this or everybody's telling me there's no way they'd join a membership for this or everybody's telling Mm -hmm. me there's you know that uh, a course might be interesting so then you start to get you can start to narrow your focus down into uh, into an area so it'll nudge you in a direction usually usually what happens is you don't get like you're not going to get 10 people that are all like, oh, if, if you had a $500 course that was six hours long and was, you know, video <laughs> of how to do this, I would, you could, I'll pay you right now. You know, that it doesn't happen that clearly, but you know, if you're open-minded and you interview enough people, you should see some themes or at least, at least if nothing else, rule out things that they're sure they're not interested in. You know, it's just not a format that they're interested in. There's another subtle piece here at work, which is these thousand people are used to hearing from Oliver. So they have a sense of who he is and how he interacts and what his knowledge base is. So they're going to, they, they when you question them, they already have this idea of who you are and what you do. And they're, um, how do I want to say this? It's, they're, they're weaving that into their feedback, usually unconsciously. Right. So what I'm trying to say is that they see you in a different way than you see yourself, probably in in some ways. And so when they give you this advice, some of the things are going to be, oh, I never thought of, about that. But in fact, it's who your people look to you for. So there's some, you know, there's a bunch of really cool stuff with talking to people who are already engaged in your worldview. They've signed on and they're basically going to tell you what they want from Oliver, not Mm -hmm. just from anybody to solve the problem, but what they want from you. Right. Yeah. You'll kind of find out how you're positioned in their minds. Yeah. Cool. Well, that was the last question. Last commercial. Last commercial. <laughs> well, I, I I am a I wouldn't say I'm a type nerd, but I have a deep deep respect for good typography. So I am going to go check that out. Yes, absolutely, and beautiful type that that does the job you want is it's it's a work of art. Mm-hmm. It, it really is in in so many different ways. Yeah, and, and it's the only design element on my website, so improving it, I, I, I imagine that that would make things better. I would certainly uh, enjoy it more myself. Cool. Okay. Well, um, folks, if you are listening and this spawned new questions or or you have questions, then feel free to send them in. Uh, I can't promise it'll be any sooner that we get to them. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I would love it if we had if we had more questions. Maybe we could do like a, a segment at the end of each show, answer a question or two. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, we could do that too. Uh, all right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.